Welcome to the show, everybody. Man, I had a normal size show waking up today, but that show just added a couple stories. So now it's uh, way too many stories, more stories than I know what to do with. So I better jump into it ASAP. Now, I'm going to start with a little bit of an update on the general election, and um, it is really, 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 really looking bad for Trump. These new numbers are out of this world, so we'll talk about that. Um, Then Biden tries to beat Trump at his own game and already fails miserably. We have Fox News hosts turning on Trump over him taking hydroxychloroquine. That's hilarious. Um, I have an amazing clip for you that shows you just how much MSNBC is told to do by the corporate Democrats. That's out of this world as well. Um, I'll talk about the whole Nancy Pelosi brouhaha where she called Trump morbidly obese. (laughs) And then um, later on in the show, I'll do the stories that just popped up on my radar this morning. Namely, one of them has to do with Elizabeth Warren desperately trying to get the VP position. That's your little teaser on that front. And then the other one has to do with Bernie Sanders, unfortunately, really letting down his own people. God, I hate these stories. Bernie, you're breaking my heart, brother. You're breaking my heart, broski. I just, you know, I just have to come to terms with the fact that he doesn't agree with me on a bunch of stuff. It's just, you know, he's with me on policy stuff, but in terms of tactics, um, I just, I think he's so off base. But anyway, I'll save that. We'll discuss that later. Um, Let's. Like I said, let's jump into general election stuff first. Here we go. So we have a new poll out, and honestly, it spells disaster for Trump. This is very, very, very bad news. So for him, for him. (laughs) I don't mean (laughs) bad news for Trump is bad news for us. No, that's not necessarily true at all. As you know, on this show, we both hate Donald Trump and Joe Biden. Uh, So... 
the really, really, really bad political news for Donald Trump that came out this week is a new poll, Quinnipiac, has Biden at 50% nationally and Trump at 39%. 11-point gap. Now, this is the part of the conversation where people chime in and say, yeah, but the election is not determined with national polls. That is correct. However, when we were, the closer we got to election day, the tighter Trump made the race when it was him versus Hillary, to the point where on election day, Hillary only had a three or four point national lead, and she ended up winning the popular vote by about that much. So the polls were kind of true on a national level, but he picked off the exact amount of support that he needed in a state-by-state basis. He grabbed the Rust Belt, which was, you know, good night for Hillary Clinton in her hopes of being uh, president of the United States. So what's happening with Biden is, at least according to this poll, it's going the other direction. Namely, um, Trump is dropping the closer we get to the election. Now, again, I'll caution you because it's, I've seen polls all over the place regarding this election. I've seen polls that came out that had Trump leading in virtually every important swing state, but I've also seen polls that have come out that show Biden leading in like every important swing state. And then, of course, there's the enthusiasm gap, which you know we've talked about before on this show, that Biden is just getting trounced on the issue of enthusiasm, where people who vote for Biden are just like, okay, I guess I'm voting for Biden. Whereas the people who vote for Trump are like, yeah, Donald Trump, yeah. So there's a big difference there. And that does matter in an election because it shows you who's more likely to actually show up. Biden might have more of that default support, but are they going to show up? That's the open question. Now, this number I just gave you, 39% to 50%, that's actually not the scariest number for Trump. This is. So... When it comes to the state of the nation's economy, again, same Quinnipiac poll here. In February 2020, 70% said the economy is excellent or good. 29% said not so good or poor. May 2020, 23% say excellent or good. 74% not so good or poor. You know, there's a case to be made that one of the biggest factors in determining elections is perception of how the economy is doing. And if indeed that holds true, Trump is in a lot of trouble, man. He's in a lot of trouble. Now, what's interesting is at the same time that this poll came out, this article came out, and it was a very fascinating read in The Hill. The article is titled, Trump tries to soothe anxious GOP senators. And basically what they describe is Republican senators are in panic mode right now. They see the recent round of polls. They see that Biden has kind of a steady lead and overall kind of has a lead in the average. Now, again, this was a similar situation for Hillary, but Hillary's lead wasn't as big as Biden's lead is right now. Um, So the Republican senators, they can read the poll numbers And they're like, oh, my goodness, what is going on here? It's not looking good for us. And Trump basically had this meeting with the Republican senators where he was doing his classic Trump move of, like, trying to tell them, don't worry, don't worry, everybody. Everything's okay. In fact, everything's going fantastic. 
And I have to tell you, the fake news media is pushing a lot of fake stories and fake polls. And we have internal poll numbers that are wonderful. They're tremendous. And we're leading in some very uh, key indicators. Like there, So there's some polls, even though this poll has Biden up 11 points nationally, there's some polls that only have them up like, you know, one or two points. So again, it varies massively. And Trump trots out those poll numbers. And then he trots out the poll that just came out a week or two ago that has him leading in many of the key swing states. And one of the things Trump himself brought up in the meeting with the Republican senators is uh, the enthusiasm gap. He's like, listen, nobody likes Sleepy Joe. Nobody likes him. People love Trump. They love Trump. And so it was a whole meeting where Trump was trying to tell all the Republican senators, hey, relax, relax. I got this thing on lock. And the other thing he was saying is, you got to stay strong. You got to stay strong and stay together. The Democrats, I know we don't like them, but they're vicious and they stay together and they present a united front. We need to present a united front as well. We need to stay tough and stay strong and go on the offense. And that's the other thing he said um, in the meeting was that we have to go on the offense. There's a lot of dirt out there on Joe Biden. If you keep highlighting that stuff, we change the narrative, we change the conversation. Now, this election, although it's soul-sucking and terrible because both candidates are abysmal, it's going to be a really, really interesting dynamic. Because at this point, I think that this election is basically going to be a referendum on how good of a bullshitter Trump is. That's what this is. <laughs> it reminds me of like when I was in like middle school. I think I told this story once on Kyle and Corin. When I was in middle school, I had to do like a mock trial thing. I was supposed to be like the defense attorney. And the prosecutor was this, you know, very studious, very intelligent girl who prepared a lot presented her arguments in a very clear, coherent way. Um, but I went up there, no preparation at all, winged it, and I ended up winning the case. And honestly, I just BSed my way through the entire thing. Like the entire thing, I was just winging it. And I was just like trying to find ways to poke holes in her arguments. Some of them, I guess, were okay. Others were really not. But I was like, I don't know. I'm unprepared. I got to try to find a way out of this. So let's go. And I really think it came down more to charisma than anything else. People heard, were listening to me talk and they're like, damn, I believe him because he sounds charismatic. And not, they don't consciously think that, but in the back of your mind, they're like, oh, I like this guy because he's charismatic, whereas she was not coming across in a charismatic way, even though she had done the work. And I think that this election is basically going to be that for Trump. It's like, okay, go ahead. Let's see how well you can BS us about this current situation. And, and, and see, I made this point before, but I think it's more stark now than ever before, which is I think Donald Trump is a president who's tailor-made to not be good in a crisis because his whole shtick that got him elected was I'm the outsider bomb thrower. I'm the outsider, unchained, no filter populist. That's how he presented himself. That's not how he governed. That's how he presented himself. And at a time when people feel like the establishment is screwing them, that's what they want. Now, when we're in a national emergency, a national crisis, and everything's coming apart, I think that people are looking much more for steady, comforting reassurance and leadership. That's what I think they're looking for in a crisis. So his whole bomb thrower appeal, it's kind of out the window when it comes to a national crisis where you need, like, 
You need to immediately fix problems now and, like, stop the boat from sinking. And he's up there, you know, throwing haymakers at his political opponents, and it's just not the same, it's not the right vibe that people are looking for at this moment. So I do think that as of today, Trump is in a world of hurt. Um, I originally said, I originally told everybody, I think it's like an 80% chance Trump gets reelected if, if he's up against Biden, because he's honestly, in, a, in normal times, he's a much better campaigner than Joe Biden is. That's obvious. Um, but then looking at what's happening with the economic crash and with COVID-19, uh, I amended that to, it's 50-50. This is, a, this is a coin flip election. You know, who knows? Um, who knows what's going to happen? I don't think anybody does. Today is the first time I'm officially declaring that I think Biden is a slight favorite to win. I think it's like 60-40 in Biden's direction. Um, now, we're going to get to a different story, which actually shows Biden going down the wrong path and like helping Trump with a certain line of argument that he's using. And so this whole election is still so volatile and it's so up in the air and still nobody really knows what's going to happen. So Biden being a slight favorite right now is not anything to, to bank on. It's not anything to put your money on. You know, it's not anything to write home about. It's, it's very volatile and it can change in an instant. And Biden's already showing that, like, his instincts are still absolutely abysmal. And again, he's got... He's got cognitive issues and he can barely talk. So that's a huge problem. Um, but as of right now, I do think that Donald Trump is, uh, is the underdog to win re-election. And there's been enough, there's been more polling showing Biden in the lead than not. And Biden has showed me enough in the primary that he's got some unique strengths. The weaknesses are obvious. Can't get the young people like half the Bernie supporters might vote third party. There are obvious, obvious weaknesses. But he showed a tremendous amount of strength with older voters, the likes of which I'm not sure I've ever seen among a Democratic candidate. And so it might just be a referendum on Trump this election. And Trump is in the position of really testing out his BSing skills. How well can he BS everybody? Can he BS everybody enough? to get him that second term, because I'm not sure Trump has it in him to make the arguments that he's going to need to make in order to get reelected. At this point, I think the best, the best path for Trump is actually the same path that George W. Bush took in, in 2004 when he won, which is, listen, man, you can't change leadership in the middle of a crisis. You can't do it. We got to see this thing through the end. You know, we've been the ones um, leading throughout this entire thing. And we're doing a, a great job, and we will continue to do it. It's just too risky to change leadership in the middle of a crisis. You can't trust this guy. You can trust me. I think that that George W. Bush argument against John Kerry, which worked, is an argument that feeds into a narrative that I've brought up on the show before, which is when we have a national crisis, historically, the approval rating for, the, for whoever's in charge spikes. Like George W. Bush after 9-11 had like an 80% approval rating. It was ridiculous. It was so high. Because what happens is people feel in a crisis patriotic and they want to fall in line behind their leader and they want to look to somebody for guidance. Um, but the timeline is so important because at a certain point in time, people go, okay, things aren't really getting better and this person is in control. 
So then they, they do the exact opposite, and they say, I want anybody but the people who are already in charge to be in charge. So it's just a matter of where we are on that timeline by the time the election comes. Um, and so anyway, as you could tell, there's a lot of like very, very interesting dynamics in this election. But I think it's largely going to be a referendum on how well Trump BSs. And this call, this meeting with Republican senators who are worried about the election was like, it's, an, it's, a, it's own little encapsulation of what's going to happen in the election. That like, here's Trump. He has to pretend like he's so confident about how he's going to do and we're doing so well and you guys got to stick together and you guys got to fight along with me and here's the arguments we're going to use is what we're going to do. And like he had to be the guy going in there going, no, everything's great. Everything's tremendous. Everything's wonderful. And the way he was trying to convince the Republican senators, it's almost like he's going to have to do the same thing for the entire country. You see what I'm saying? And say like, no, 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 everything's wonderful. Everything's great. We're fighting back and I'm a strong leader and we don't want to change leadership in the middle of the crisis. And you know, listen, Sleepy Joe, he's got a lot of problems, a lot of problems, and, you know, you can make the arguments against Joe and so on and so forth, but um, these numbers right now are not good for Trump. Those economic numbers are abysmal, and um, the 11-point lead nationally is pretty large, but thankfully, he's up against Joe Biden, <laughs> and when you're up against Joe Biden, you know, that's why I say this election is so volatile, because, like, at any minute, at any minute, you could have a wild swing in the other direction. Nothing is stable. Nothing is steady. Um, even though I think Biden's a slight favorite right now, this thing is still massively, massively, massively up in the air. And like I said before, I, I wouldn't be surprised with any outcome in this election, any outcome. So in other words, if it's like really close and it's a nail biter and it comes down to one state, and I wouldn't be surprised at all. Not at all. I also wouldn't be surprised with a Trump landslide victory, and I also wouldn't be surprised with a Biden landslide victory. Like, literally nothing about this election would surprise me. Like, anything could happen, and I'd be like, yep, that was a possibility. That was certainly within the realm of that, which is reasonable. So um, it's just a shame that the country is imploding because we have these two horrific people who are trying to lead it. But I digress from that. Not good news for Trump, and we'll see if he could rebound. Okay, next. All right, it is Joe Biden trying to beat Trump at his own game. Let me set this up for you for YouTube. So we have some big news for the election here. I think this shows an interesting dynamic, if not a sad dynamic. Um, Joe Biden is going to try to beat Trump at his own game. So take a look at this from the New York Post. Joe Biden finally makes up a nickname for Trump. President Tweedy. President Tweedy. So that's what this is. This is Biden saying, okay, I got to try to be like Trump here, and I got to beat him at his own game. And, you know, here's the problem. That's not possible. This is the Trump game. Trump has been giving nicknames to people forever. 
And it's one of those things where we're so used to it and it's so ingrained in everybody's mind that Trump gets, just gets a pass for it in a way. I'm not saying that's fair and I'm not saying that's right. But what I'm saying is that's what it is. That everybody, people who agree with Trump, disagree with Trump, somewhere in the middle, everybody's just like, oh, yeah, that's Trump. It reminds me of um, somebody once said that about the cartoon South Park, that they were like, it got to the point where there was enough outrage for enough time over enough episodes where at some point people were just like, what are you going to do with South Park? So they like, they pushed their way through all the outrage and kept doing what it is they do. And so it just got written off as like, that's what they do. Like they're, they're allowed to do something completely outrageous and completely, you know, allegedly offensive or whatever it may be, because that's what they do. That's who they are. And it's the same thing for Trump now. Every time he comes up with a nickname, it's like, you know, you look at it and you either laugh or you don't, but you, you never, there is no reaction anymore. There is no like, oh, he, he did a nickname. He did a nickname, childish. Nobody says that anymore because we're so used to it. It just, it is what it is. But for Biden, you never gave people nicknames. It's not a thing you do. This isn't in the Biden playbook. And I think the thing that's so frustrating about this is, bro, we know that that took like you and seven staffers sitting in a meeting a couple hours to figure out that you were bouncing ideas back and forth and you were trying, what's going to play well in the media? Let's think of a nickname that's really going to make a splash. Somebody probably threw out some terrible ones. Then eventually Biden probably brought up President Tweedy and everybody else thought it was whack. And he was like, this is it. I think I got it. Where am I? Like, that's what's so sad about this. It's like, and Biden has the entire media apparatus of CNN and MSNBC and all the non-Fox networks. They're at his disposal. And they're doing his bidding. And he's got all the king's horses and all the king's men hiding his cognitive decline. And even with all of that, there's still a question as to whether or not he's going to win the race. Even with a freaking economic depression. And even with a pandemic ripping through the country. There's still a question as to whether or not he's going to win the race. Why? Because of stuff like this. Because you see, they have, they have no idea what they're doing. They don't know what they're doing. It's like, you know what this reminds me of? The Hillary Clinton... America is already great line. That's what this reminds me of. I know it seems like it's not connected, but both of those things, President Tweedy and America is already great, shows a complete lack of standard political instincts. It shows in the case of Trump saying, hey, we're going to make America great again. What argument is he making? Hey, we got a lot of problems and they're really bad. And I'm going to come in, I'm going to try to fix them. All right, so I'm going to try to make America great again. Hillary saying America's already great, what message does that send? She doesn't even realize it, but the message that sends is everything's actually already pretty good right now. So, you know, how dare you call my wonderful, beautiful country not already great? I'm so offended by that. And it's like, but people have problems, and they got bills to pay, and we got the infrastructures crumbling, and we're fighting, you know, seven or eight different wars right now. What do you mean America's already great? What does that mean? What does that mean? And so it shows, it's like, it's a reflexive anti-Trumpism in a way where it's, it's not intelligent and it doesn't reflect the reality of the nature of the country. Biden saying, 
President Tweedy is just him trying to beat Trump at his own game, but why would you try to beat him at the Trump game instead of changing the game? I don't understand that. Why would you not want to change the game and say, hey, here's where I do better. So where does Biden do better? Probably better when he's just, well, he can't really talk, so that's kind of out of the picture. (laughs) But like, I don't know, maybe pointing out all of the flaws in the approach that Trump has taken to fight back against this pandemic. Pointing out how he dragged his feet, pointing out how the administration was lying early on, pointing out how they were briefly saying that masks don't work to stop the spread of the virus. You could point out something like that. You could point out the fact that this was a massive corporate bailout. The early COVID bills were massive corporate bailouts, $5 trillion, and Goldman Sachs lackey Steve Mnuchin gets to determine where it goes to which corporations with no oversight. There's a lot of there there to attack that's substantive. But really, you get the sense that Biden doesn't really disagree with any of those things per se, and he would have probably had a similar response uh, to the crisis. So he's not, he's letting that off the hook. And he's just like, I'll try to out Trump Trump on his grounds. You're never going to beat the master at his own game. This is what he does. Nobody does like petty insults and vindictive rants better than Trump. That's all, that's what Trump is. He, he's made up of pettiness and he has a vindictive nature. You're not going to out-petty him or out-vindictive him. Again, he's the nickname guy. You're not the nickname guy. So it's not going to work. It's just, it's sad. But anyway, let me get to my main conclusion because this is, I think, nobody else is saying this, and I sound like Trump, nobody else is saying this. I'm the only one who's saying this. (laughs) But it's true. Nobody else is saying this. And it's funny because I think it's actually pretty obvious that Biden's best play is to do nothing. Biden's best play is to do exactly what he did in the primary. Dog, go hide in your basement. And I'm not talking about go hide in your basement and use your, the studio you have down there to, to do interviews with people. Go hide in your basement and hide in your basement. Don't do any interviews. Send out surrogates. Let them do interviews for you. Every now and then you want to send out, you know, a statement or like a policy paper. Hey, here's a problem and this is how I think it should be addressed. And then lay it out. Totally down with that, but... Hello, Biden staffers. It worked in the primary when you hit him. Biden won states he had no campaign offices in and he didn't show up in. The more you put Biden out there in public, he's got the Hillary Clinton effect going on. The more people dislike him. The more you show him, the more people are like, I don't know about all that, dog. With Hillary, it was like, damn, I just don't like her. I don't think she's fighting for the people and... Her record is terrible, and she's annoying. But with Biden, it's like, damn, he's got cognitive decline. So keep hiding him. What are you doing? The answer is in plain sight. It worked in the primary. It could work in the general. If this election truly is just a referendum on Trump and how Trump is handling this crisis, let it be that. Give him enough rope to hang himself. That very well could happen. Now, it's a little bit of a roll of the dice, but I honestly think you have a better chance doing that than anything else than anything else. I mean it. It's already the case that this crisis is helping Biden because now we have a freaking depression and now we have a pandemic. That's, those are things that factor in his favor because it works against the incumbent over you know, a certain period of time. Okay, So those are already helping him. Then add that on top of the fact that Trump is a bomb thrower and people don't really want a bomb throw in the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of a national crisis. Go hide, bro. 
Go watch reruns of, you know, whatever your favorite show is, Golden Girls. <laughs> I don't know why, why I came up with Golden Girls there. But, yeah, go watch your favorite show. Go relax. Go eat some popcorn and some ice cream. Chill out, dog. Biden has a very, very good chance of winning this election if he does Dickie McGee's acts. It, this does, the President Tweety stuff does more harm than good. Because all you're going to get is wise asses like me to do segments like this where I say, shut up, idiot. You're not going to beat Trump at the freaking nickname game. It's not going to happen. So since that's the case, you're going to get no points for your goofy speeches or interviews, and you can barely talk, and you're all over the place, and you have no coherent ideology, and you're, every time I see you, I'm reminded of the Iraq war vote and the Wall Street deregulation and NAFTA and TPP. Like, shut up and go away. And what will happen is people at least the people who are Biden supporters, by and large, the older generation, they will vote more on what their perception of Joe Biden is from, like, freaking 2012, when he was debating Paul Ryan and obliterating him. So that's all you got to do, man. Biden's got the easiest path out of any, can- any campaign in history. He's already shown his strength is to do nothing and hide. So, okay, do nothing and hide. What are you waiting for? So, anyway... I'm not kidding about that either. Some people might hear this segment and go, come on, Kyle, there's no way that you really believe. Yes, I do. Of course that's what I believe. Let Trump keep talking. Let Trump hang himself. Let Trump keep bomb throwing when people want steady leadership. Let, you know, there's going to be a depression ripping through the country as it is right now, a pandemic ripping through the country. Trump is going to contradict himself a thousand times. He's going to show poor leadership as he's done a thousand times. Is it possible that Trump somehow stumbles across a coherent strategy that wins in this election? Yes. But it's also very possible he doesn't. And I know Biden's not doing any favors for himself by going out there and saying anything at all. Because every time he says anything, there's a thousand, you know, Twitter clips showing that he's incoherent. And everybody's like, God damn, that's bad, son. So go hide. (laughs) There's no downside to it. So anyway, that seriously is my advice. If I was running Biden's campaign, that's exactly what I would have him do. I wouldn't allow him on TV and let and let because you know what happens, right? This happened the last time. The left, like the Bernie supporters, started screaming, "Where's Biden? Where's Biden?" Some Trump people started screaming, "Where's Biden? Where's Biden?" But okay, to which I respond, "He's hiding." And what are you going to do about it? You're not going to do Dickie McGee's act. You're going to sit there and you're going to take it. And guess what? Our boy's going to hang on to his lead. If you're on the Biden team, he's going to hang on to his lead. That's what's going to happen. So it doesn't matter. Let people make noise. But as long as you're hiding away, the numbers show you're doing all right, dog. So I don't know. That's what I would say. I don't think they're going to take that path because it's weird. It's like corporate Democrats, in many respects, at least in the Biden campaign, they kind of accidentally did the right thing against the left and won. They beat Bernie. In a general, for some reason, they become, like, a lot dumber. (laughs) And they just walk into Republican traps, and the Republicans beat up on them all day, and they're useless, and they're all over the place. But if they just hide him, he's got a a decent chance of winning this thing. So no more President Tweedy, no more nicknames, no more silliness. Do yourself a favor and just go take a nap. All right, next.
President Trump announced that he's taking hydroxychloroquine, which is, you know, it's an anti-malaria drug, which people thought early on in the COVID crisis that this uh, might have some positive effects, might be able to fight COVID-19. And there's been some study on it. Early on, there were some promising studies regarding hydroxychloroquine. The more time has gone by and the more studies have been done, the evidence now is more leaning in the other direction that it really doesn't do um, anything necessarily good. We have better treatments like remdesivir, which reduces uh, COVID time about 31%. Um, and there's a bunch of things that they're studying, a bunch of things they're looking into. But hydroxychloroquine is really not on the top of the list of drugs that are the best to treat COVID-19. Well, what's hilarious is that Trump kind of latched onto this. There's an open question as to why he did latch onto it. Um, some are arguing that it's because of financial ties to the person or the company that makes it. Or, and I don't know the details of that. It's certainly possible. But I do think that he also really believes in it. Um, maybe he read a couple articles and he was like, that's it. I got it. I don't need no double-blind studies. I don't need anything. I got it. The article's all I need, and I'm convinced. Certainly possible. But he's taking it now. He decided I'm going to take it. And he's doing it, he says, for preventative reasons. You know, there's been a thousand stories about Trump was like in close contact with people who have COVID, whether it was at uh, Mar-a-Lago with uh, President Bolsonaro of Brazil and his you know, close staff, or whether it was there was a staffer in the White House, like Mike Pence's communications director or something like that, who had it and was in close contact with Trump. And so Trump finally realized, like, oh, my God, I'm human. This is bad. I'm old. <laughs> like, I'm I got to do something, right? So he started taking the hydroxychloroquine. Now, again, the recent studies are not looking good for this drug. And there are especially issues if you have, like, pre-existing conditions. So Neil Cavuto, who, by the way, suffers from a chronic illness. I forget which chronic illness it is. Um, I'm, not, I'm blanking on it. I'm not going to get it. I think it's the same thing that Montel Williams has. I don't know if it's lupus or I don't know if it's... Um, let me, let me actually look this up as I'm talking to you guys right now because this is going to bug me if I don't come up with it. Montel Williams disease. He has multiple sclerosis. Now, let's see. I think it's multiple sclerosis then for uh, Neil Cavuto. Let's type in multiple sclerosis. Multiple sclerosis. Yeah. In fact, few people know that Cavuto has multiple sclerosis. Despite being diagnosed 15 years ago with this degenerative neurologic disease, he continues to maintain a thriving career, serving as senior vice president, anchor, and managing editor of business news for both Fox Business Network and Fox News Channel. Okay, yeah. So he has multiple sclerosis. He has a chronic illness. Um, but anyway, I don't know exactly how that's relevant to this story about hydroxychloroquine. I guess just that he's familiar with, like, taking medication, like he knows a thing or two about certain um, illnesses because he's dealing with one. But anyway, um, so he goes on his show and he lays into Trump. Watch this. Showed that among a population of uh, veterans in, in a hospital receiving this treatment, those with vulnerable conditions, respiratory conditions, heart ailments, they died. There are also a number of other studies out, including the Journal of the American Medical Association, which examines some 1,438 individuals in the New York area across 25 hospitals from the middle of March to the end of March. The study 
was a real chance to look at the, the, the benefits that the president insisted were hydroxychloroquine. They concluded that among residents, uh, residents hospitalized in metropolitan New York with COVID-19, the treatment or both compared with neither treatment, no statistical differences. A second study done by Joseph Jalaris and colleagues at the New York Presbyterian Hospital, Columbia University Irving Medical Center in northern Manhattan from March 7th to April 8th also showed there were no visible differences, that the risk of intubation or death was not significantly higher or lower among patients who received hydroxychloroquine versus those who did not. The VA study to which the president alluded wasn't a loaded political one. It was a test on patients there and those who took it in a vulnerable population, including those with respiratory or other conditions, they died. I want to stress again, they died. If you are in a risky population here and you were taking this as a preventative uh, treatment to ward off the virus, or in a worst case scenario, you are dealing with the virus, and you are in this vulnerable population, it will kill you. I cannot stress enough. This will kill you. So again, whatever benefits the president says this has, and it certainly has had for those suffering from malaria, dealing with lupus, this is a, a leap that, that should not be taken casually by those watching at home or assuming, well, the President of the United States says it's okay. Uh, even the FDA was very cautious about this unless in a clinical trial safely and deliberately watched. I only make this not to make a political point here, but a life and death point. Be very, very careful. Damn. So that's rare. That's rare that you get a Fox host that's that, like, aggressively against something that Trump is talking about. Um, now, Trump says that he's stopped. I read an article yesterday that said Trump, Trump says he's stopping taking it in, like, a day or two, that then he'll be done and he won't take it anymore. I don't know if the reason he's stopping has anything to do with this pushback. Um, but, yeah, like, the evidence now is not great. But Trump was taking it, and he somehow was convinced that this is the way to go. And, you know, whatever White House doctor he has is a little bit of a cuck. And, he, and Trump's like, I want to take this. It's wonderful. I've read some tremendous things, some amazing things. And the doctor's like, yes, sir, yes, sir, instead of, like, actually pulling out his medical credentials and saying, like, not really the best idea, bro. This is not really the best idea. Um, so, but Neil Cavuto is deadly serious. I don't understand if Trump doesn't know or doesn't care that his word carries a lot of weight with a lot of people. Like, there are hardcore Trump supporters out there that love everything he says, everything he does, everything about this guy. And it's just flat-out true that when you have somebody with that kind of sway, there are going to be a number of people who are like, the president's taking it, I'm going to try to take it. And, you know, there was that old story, which I don't think it was Trump's fault, where they, people took a different version of hydroxychloroquine, some other kind of chloroquine, and it was like a fish tank cleaner, and they almost died or died or something, and the media blamed Trump. I don't think that's fair, because it wasn't, literally wasn't even the same drug. And at the time, Trump wasn't telling anybody to take it. He was saying, we have evidence that this might help fight COVID. Um, so I don't blame him for that. But if there are people who start taking it now because of what he says, that's a different story. Because he says, I'm taking it, and I don't have any COVID symptoms, and so it might help. Like, yeah, I think there's going to be a decent number of people who are hardcore Trump stands who are like, well, I'm going to take it too. The Trump, President Trump's taking it. 
It's good enough for him. It's good enough for me. It's good enough for the president. It's good enough for me. And like Neil's laying out there, hey, man, if you've got some pre-existing conditions of, of a certain variety, this is really, really dangerous stuff. It could kill you. It could kill you. So I don't know what's going on in Trump's mind. I, honestly, I'm inclined to believe that really he read an article or two early on in the process that, like, had glowing praise of hydroxychloroquine, and he really thought, like, boom, I got it. This is it. This is, like, the magic solution. Um, I really think that, and that's a kind interpretation to Trump, that he read an article or two, and he thought, like, oh, this is, this is it. This is the thing that helps. And so that's why he's doing it. But, yeah, the fact that he was so easily convinced and kind of wrongly convinced of that, and now he's acting on it, that does make it so a lot of other people would be like, yeah, I'll try it too, and I'll have it too. And it's just not, like, dude, you're not a doctor, Don. You're not a doctor. And he definitely used his force of personality to try to get the White House doctor to give him the prescription, and he got it, and he got it. I've seen a bunch of doctors now come out and say, like, no, I wouldn't have given him a prescription for that. Of course not. I tell him, this is the, what you're doing, there's not good evidence for taking it. Like, what are you doing? So, uh, you know, Neil Cavuto, by the way, in reaction to this clip, Good googly moogly. The bowels of hell opened up on his face. He got nonstop, you know, hate mail, hate tweets as expected. Um, Trump said something on Twitter to the effect of, like, we missed the great Roger Ailes and, you know, t- taking a shot at Neil Cavuto. And it's so, it's so funny how, like, any kind of correction or disagreement to Trump is, like, personal. It's like, dog, this is not personal. You're taking a pill that there's really not solid evidence for. Early on, I could understand being confused and thinking, hey, this might have a positive effect, because I thought so too. I saw the articles. But, like, we're at the point now where there's new evidence. It's not that great. It shows that hydroxychloroquine really is not the way to go. And so people are going to respond to that. Like, what do you expect, Don, that whatever you say is totally final and nobody could say, hey, man, I don't know about that. Nobody's allowed to dissent ever. Is that because what he's doing here, whether or not he realizes it, is super reckless. Like, it is reckless. You're just taking a pill, not great evidence for it. Other people might want to do the same thing now. If you have pre existing conditions, it's dangerous. It's just like, what are you doing, man? Uh, he's, I mean, but then again, we're talking about this as if this is surprising, but this is from the same dude who, in the press conference not too long ago, was casually talking about. How UV light, UV light really does kill this virus. It's really amazing. It's really tremendous. What we got to try to do is find a way. We got to get the UV light inside the body. Can we get the UV light inside the body? Is that something we could do? Are we looking into that? Are we studying that? You know, and, and you know, you've heard of these tremendous stories about a disinfectant. There's a disinfectant, and the disinfectant kills it within a minute. Within a minute. It's unbelievable. It's really something else. It's really something special. And we're going to look into that very strongly. And we're looking into maybe can we get that inside? If we can get the disinfected inside the body, <laughs> this, is, this is who this guy is. He's talking about disinfecting and UV light, getting it inside the body. So we shouldn't be surprised. If anything, the hydroxychloroquine love is a step up from that. It's like, oh, that's, he's graduated to a slightly more serious position of like at least something that's actually like there was originally some evidence for at least. Anyway. I couldn't believe when he said, yeah, I'm taking it. It's like, what? <laughs> you're really taking Bro, you're the president, dog. You can't just like willy-nilly. Yeah, I'll take this. 
hey, man, I know we've speculated on this before, but who knows what else he's taken. Uh, you know, Adderall is one that popped in my mind many times, and he's got to be on some sort of stimulant because when you see him in those rallies and you see him in those debates, you're like, bro, you're in your 70s, and you're sort of fat, and you're up there ranting and, and raving and moving and sweating and just going on and on, and it's like, uh-huh. I don't know if that's just caffeine, dog. That doesn't really look like just caffeine. But anyway, I'll tell you what. If I was president, you bet your ass I'd be taking some Adderall, too. <laughs> you got to work from – well, he's not working from sunup to sundown. But as a general rule, if you're president, you want to work from sunup till sundown trying to solve the world's problems, and you need some energy. So sometimes you got to do a little Adderall here and there. You know what I'm saying? Anyway, this is a weird way to end the clip, but there you have it. Neil Cavuto got holy hell rained on him for being like – that's not exactly medically sound, man, talking to Trump about his hydroxychloroquine use. Okay, next. Go to this Bernie Blackout documentary. I want to play a little clip uh, for you from it. So I highly recommend everybody check out the Bernie Blackout documentary. Um, it's on Vice and... What they did is they described how mainstream media has an anti-Bernie bias. And to my surprise, the documentary was pretty well done. Um, I think they make a pretty strong case. There's a lot of prominent lefty media people who are kind of featured in it. They only used, um, they only used like a three-second clip of me. And I was semi-butthurt by that. Not butthurt by the fact that they used the clip, butthurt by the fact that they didn't use more. I was like, really? I was, I was one of the louder, you know, pro-Bernie voices in media. But they had a lot of people from Chapo Trap House. I love the people from Chapo Trap House. I think that um, podcast is great. Um, they had Crystal from The Hill. They had a lot of Jimmy Dore which is actually interesting because he wasn't a Bernie supporter this time around. He was a Tulsi supporter, but they, were, they took a bunch of little things that he said and, and, and put him in there. And uh, really not that much of me. Slightly butthurt. But anyway, um, so they made a strong case that, yes, there was a giant bias against Bernie in the mainstream media. And there's a moment in the documentary that I wanted to share with you. This is what I view as proof as to how MSNBC is really just corporate Democrat propaganda. This goes beyond just evidence. This is like, oh, it was barely hidden, almost not hidden at all. And this actually involves our friend uh, Crystal Ball from Rising. So let's take a look at a story from when she was there. Watch this. Media has a boss. 
Crystal Ball, when she was on MSNBC, criticized Hillary Clinton. Hillary's people called the president of MSNBC and said, hey, nice segment you got there. Anyway, it'd be a shame if you got zero access to Hillary when she runs. So then the president of MSNBC spoke to Crystal Ball and said, listen, ours, fine what you did, it's fine what you did, but if you want to do anything else critical of Hillary Clinton, you got to run it through management first. Because management wanted to maintain that access with the Clintons. I've never seen a more clear example of like, and, and here's the point, guys. This goes beyond Chomsky's manufacturing consent thesis. See, the idea of that is corporations really reflect the will of the government and the elites, maybe even more than state media does, because they're all part of the same elite class. And really, the control happens in the hiring process, where you have, like, the only people who get to the top of that profession are people who are so thoroughly pre-vetted that management knows these people are not going to rock the boat. There's a reason why Chuck Todd has such a prominent job as the host of Meet the Press. There's a reason why Wolf Blitzer is on CNN for about a thousand hours a day. Because they know, oh, we got to go with the safe people who are not going to question power and authority. They're not going to question the establishment. They're not going to rock the boat. So you get this picture of the world that's painted which reflects the will of the elites and the establishment. That's the idea of manufacturing consent. What this story with Crystal shows us is that sometimes it even goes beyond just that. It even goes beyond a situation where you don't need direct interference in order to get the host to do your bidding. In some instances, they literally also do the direct interference which is what we're hearing in this story, which is wild, bro. Now, don't get it twisted. Don't get it twisted. Every time I beat up on MSNBC and CNN, I feel compelled to let everybody know Fox works the exact same way with the Republicans. Exact same way. Don't get it twisted. They're not holier than thou. They're not better. None of that. No. In the same way that MSNBC is the propaganda arm of the corporate Democrats, Fox News is the propaganda arm of the corporate Republicans. So that's just the nature of the beast. That's just how it works. So they're not off the hook. But in the case of MSNBC, a lot of people early on had hoped that they'd be better, that, hey, maybe this would be a network that actually represents left interests. It doesn't. It only represents corporate Democratic interests. And as we all know, corporate Democratic interests almost never line up with the left. Maybe every now and then they sprinkle in some agreement on social issues like gay marriage, for example. But when it comes to economic stuff, you're never going to get them really, um, really questioning stuff in the way that they should. Now, this story from Crystal is one thing, but there's even more evidence, man. Like, I consider this proof from Crystal here. This story is out of this world, and it really shows you how dirty this game is. But Ed Schultz tells a story in this documentary, and it's something that we actually covered on this show before, because the news broke a couple years ago, but uh, the late, great Ed Schultz, rest in peace, he um, was blocked from covering Bernie's announcement. When Bernie announced that he was running for president, they had this whole thing planned where they announced it on Ed Schultz's show, and 
you know, they have a big interview and everything, and apparently the president of MSNBC called Ed Schultz at the last minute and said, you are not covering this. You are not covering this. And so they, bl- they wanted to block Ed Schultz from covering the launch of a campaign for president of a U.S. senator. Guys, they can ignore Bernie when he's been in Washington, D.C. for about a thousand years. He was a congressman. He was a senator before all that. He was a mayor in Burlington, Vermont. A guy who's very well established, who's going to run for president, and they still tried to ignore him. They still tried to block him out. This was their philosophy, their approach, their way of defeating the insurgent left is they ignore you as much as they possibly can. You know, you can't gain that big of a following if you're never shown the light of day. It requires anti-establishment, independent new media outlets like this one to even show you guys what's happening with people like Bernie because he was a real threat to them. He actually would change stuff. And so MSNBC said, nope. They were doing the bidding of the Clintons back then as well. And then, of course, there's the famous story of Jenk Uger, who worked at MSNBC. And forget the years. I want to say it was like 2010 and 2011, maybe. But um, he was tough on Obama, because at the time, Obama was doing many things that were pretty conservative and pretty pro-establishment. And so Jenk called it out multiple times. And he was called into the office of the president. And the president says, president of MSNBC. And the president says, hey, man, I know, like, you want to be an outsider. And outsiders are cool and stuff. But we're insiders. And I was told by my friends in Washington that maybe you should reel it in a little bit. And Jenk says that he was floored by that. He was like, what? (laughs) What? So he actually got, like, a speech. He got the speech on easy, buddy. Easy, buddy. Don't go too hard in the paint, or else it's not going to be accepted. So that's three stories right there from three sources I trust. Crystal Ball, Ed Schultz, Jenk Uger. All three of them had a, a very similar experience where they were like, yeah, they flat out, it wasn't even like subtle controls like you would expect in the manufacturing consent dynamic of how things work. It was just outright like you're crossing a line, not okay, reel it in. We carry water for these people. That's wild, man. That's wild. And uh, the most sad, depressing thing about all this is older voters still trust these networks. Older Democrats still trust MSNBC and CNN. And that, in part, explains the giant divide between the younger voters who 80% went for Bernie Millennial and and even Generation X, tremendously high numbers went for Bernie. A very high percentage went for Bernie because those people are more likely to what? Get their news online. Get their news from outlets like this or certain websites that they like. Whereas the older voters, they'll sit back and watch CNN and MSNBC and they think they're getting the straight dope from these people. They think they're getting the real news. And so they have no idea about all this dirtiness behind the scenes and how politics is playing in it, and they're not telling you the truth, and they're not being honest. So it's a shame because in many ways, corporate media is still king, and they are absolutely controlling the narrative, whereas outlets like this are still unfortunately just responding to it. Okay. All right, let me take a break. When we come back, 
I got to give credit to a CNN host, Fareed Zakari. I think he does a great rant on COVID-19 that I want to play for you. And then Nancy Pelosi goes after Trump. That's what everybody's talking about. You don't want to miss it. Stay right there. We'll be right back.
I'm back, y'all. I am back. I am back. Okay, so... You know, the last two segments of the previous show was me uh, viciously going after... Viciously going after um, CNN hosts. Chris Saliza and Brian Stelter. And um, this time... I'm going to give a CNN host a little bit of credit to just show you how immensely fair I am. Um, but no, seriously, this is a good segment that I'm about to play for you. So, <clears throat> let me set it up. Every now and then, Fareed Zakaria of CNN has a take that's pretty good. This is one of those times. So, he's talking about how the COVID-19 um, politicization politicization, it's a hard word, Uh, it really comes down to class more than anything else. Let's watch. If anyone thought a global pandemic that has so far killed more than 85,000 Americans would override the country's partisan divide, think again. It turns out that Democrats are significantly more likely than Republicans to believe that the pandemic is serious and to follow CDC guidelines. Preliminary studies using cell phone data show that people in more Republican areas of the country have been moving around more than in Democratic areas. This has led many to wonder why partisanship has become so strong in the U.S. that people will not listen to experts even at the risk of their own health. But there's a broader distrust that we need to understand. I recognized it while reading a book that is not about COVID-19 at all, but sheds strong light on the situation explaining why so many people across the West, really, have rejected the establishment. Michael Lind writes in The New Class War, the issue is not the issue. The issue is power. Social power exists in three realms, government, the economy, and the culture. Each of these three realms of social power is the site of class conflict. Lind argues that the best way to understand America today is through this lens of class conflict, which has been sharpened by the rise of an overclass that dominates the three spheres he mentions. In all three, leaders tend to be urban, college-educated professionals, often with a postgraduate degree, and that makes them quite distinct from much of the rest of the country. Only 36% of Americans have a bachelor's degree, and only 13% have a master's or more. And yet, the top ranks everywhere are filled with this credentialed overclass. For many non-college-educated people, especially those living in rural areas, there is a deep alienation from this new elite. They see the overclass as enacting policies that are presented as good for the whole country, but really mostly benefit people from the ruling class, whose lives have gotten better over the past few decades while the rest are left behind. In this view, trade and immigration, for example, help college-educated professionals who work for multinational companies but hurt blue-collar workers. So when they hear from the experts about the inevitability of globalization and technological change and the need to accept it, they resist. It does not resonate with their lived experience. So let's look at the COVID-19 crisis through this prism. Imagine you're an American who works with his hands, a truck driver, a construction worker, an oil mechanic, and you've just lost your job because of the lockdowns, as have over 36 million people. You turn on the television, 
And you hear medical experts, academics, technocrats, journalists explain that we must keep the economy closed. In other words, we must keep you unemployed because public health is important. Now, all these people making the case on TV have jobs, have maintained their standards of living, and in fact are now in greater demand. They feel they're doing important work. You, on the other hand, have lost your job. You feel a sense of worthlessness, and you are terrified about your family's day-to-day survival. Is it so hard to understand why people like this might be skeptical of the experts? The COVID-19 divide is a class divide. The Bureau of Labor Statistics released a report last year on the job flexibilities of U.S. employees. Of the top 25% of income earners, more than 60% can stay home and still do their jobs. Of the bottom 25% of income earners, fewer than 10% can work from home. In the early days of the crisis, only 13% of people in households making over $100,000 were laid off or furloughed, compared to 39% in households making less than $40,000. Wow. That was something else. So that book that he cites there, I had never heard of it until right now. And uh, that's an interesting theory. He says... um, There's three, I don't know how you describe them, sectors of society, segments of society. There's government power, economic power, and cultural power. And basically there's a class war going on when it comes to the government, when it comes to the economy, and when it comes to the culture. And he goes on to describe why, you know, many people would be skeptical of so-called experts telling us, oh, sorry, you can't go back to work. we got to keep the economy closed, and uh, it is what it is because we're dealing with the pandemic. And you understand more why they feel the way they do when you look at it that way. And the guy's name is Michael Lind. I I didn't catch the name of the book there, but that's an interesting theory, and it sounds like an interesting book. Um, But anyway, yeah, what he's talking about there is true, and I've tried to from the beginning. It's a balancing act because – on the one hand, yes, you want to be able to like make fun of people saying dumb things that aren't true and that are silly. Like, for example, there was a, a story that came out of this uh, One American News Network guy who's appeared. He's like a right-wing media guy. He's appeared on a bunch of, you know, these kinds of outlets like One American News Network. And um, he was talking about how it's not a good idea to wear a mask because if you wear a mask, you're keeping the germs in your body and you want to get the germs out of your body. So if you're not wearing a mask, you can get the germs out of your body and that's safer. (laughs) Like you want to be able to make fun of idiots saying idiotic stuff, but at the same time, you want to be clear that a, a large number of the people who are out there in these like open up protests, are people whose economic lives have been destroyed by the pandemic and they're not getting the help that they need from the government in the form of UBI and they're not getting the rent freeze and the mortgage freeze. So they feel like they have no option. They have no out, but to go back to work. And so all of their anger is then directed at the people who they think are telling them you can't work, namely like the scientists and the doctors and and the experts who are saying you can't do it. Now that's misplaced anger not their fault they're just trying to protect everybody but you can understand where they're coming from 
And, you know, it really is, there's, there's really a strong class divide here. And he lays it out and gives the numbers that the people who are more wealthy are more able to, like, take an extended period of time off from work and stay home and can still pay the bills and can socially distance and quarantine and be fine. Whereas if you're on the lower end of the economic ladder, you can't afford it. And again, with the government not giving you health care and UBI and a rent freeze and a mortgage freeze or paying your wage for an extended period of time, what are you going to do? There's no out. You have no out. So that's really interesting um, points there from Fareed Zakaria. And I guess the final point I'll make is just in relation to these open up protests, we have to, have, we have to do that balancing act. We have to be able to make fun of people and, and when they say silly things and point out how that's wrong and dangerous if you're spreading misinformation about COVID. But also you have to make sure to never go too far in the direction of only mocking because then you're alienating all the people who are just in pain and trying to get back to some semblance of normalcy and stabilization in their lives economically. So you have to be able to have empathy for the people who deserve the empathy because they have no out while also making fun of the people spreading misinformation and being total idiots. And that's a hard thing to do. It's a hard thing to do. It's a hard thing to to pull that off. Um, But it is also frustrating, though, how we've brought this up on a previous show. There's been... 191, probably at this point way over 191 different protests for protective gear, for hazard pay, uh, for frontline workers, for essential workers. And almost none of them got any coverage in the media, but the, the open up protests, was, which were largely more right-wingers, that got a hell of a lot more coverage. So it is kind of frustrating, and it, it's just a fact of reality that we have to deal with, that like nominally left-wing protests to like treat workers fairly and give them hazard pay and protect them by giving them masks on the front line, left-wing protests get no love, no appreciation, no coverage. It's like they're trying to hide it on purpose because they don't want them to take off and maybe be successful. Whereas the right-wing protests, they cover them nonstop. And, you know, I'm sure the, the, the reason for covering them varies. You know, I'm sure the motivations of the people covering them vary. Some of them just want to make fun of it. Some don't. But, like, the right-wing protests get a hell of a lot more coverage. And it's a shame because the left-wing protests need that coverage to breathe life into it. And, you know, it's like that story the other day where one of only a few outlets that covered it, which is insane, that garbage workers in New Orleans, they were protesting. They're making $10.25 an hour. They were protesting because they're like, we're not – you have to give us, like, masks and protective gear and equipment – that, so that we don't get COVID. And then they were all fired, and New Orleans brought in slaves to do the job, brought in forced prison labor to do the job. How is this not like the number one story in the country? I'll tell you why. It's not, it's because we have corporate media, and corporate media is going to look the other way at stuff like that. They just think that's how the system is. That's just how it functions. That's just what it is. Not even a story there. Seems like a big story to me. Workers fired and replaced with prison labor because they demanded to at least get some hazard pay and masks. Insanity. But anyway, uh, you know, very rare I say this, but that's a great um, segment there from CNN host Fareed Zakaria. Every now and then, man, every now and then he throws a curveball at you and you're like, all right, not bad. But then, you know, he'll do another segment, which is ludicrous soon enough, and we'll make fun of it. Okay, next. So this is one of those stories that I don't 
I don't really care to cover it, but it, it's such a big story and everybody's talking about it and it inspired so many strong opinions that I feel compelled to cover it because I just want to give my two cents. So Nancy Pelosi was asked to respond to the fact that Trump is taking hydroxychloroquine and uh, her answer blew up on social media. As far as the president is concerned, um, the, uh, uh, our, he's our president, and I would rather he not be taking something that has not been approved uh, by the scientists, especially in his age group and in his, shall we say, weight group, what is morbidly obese, they say. So I, I, uh, I, I think it's not a good idea. All right, so my take on this is that if you have a strong opinion one way or the other, I probably hate you, <laughs> and I can't get along with you. <laughs> because I've seen so much of, like, the two reactions are like, some people are going, Nancy, that is fat shaming, and fat shaming is wrong. How dare you? That's what some people are saying. And other people are saying, like, Nancy got him. Oh, Nancy, tough as nails. You're showing him. Give him a dose of his own medicine. <laughs> He's fat. He's fat. All of you, please, for the love of God, shut the fuck up. <laughs> You're all so annoying. Shut the fuck up. I don't care. Shut the fuck up. I don't care what your fucking take is on this shitty. Who cares? It's a throwaway line. She probably didn't even think it was going to blow up. Um... The fact that he's taking the hydroxychloroquine is a little ridiculous because now the new evidence shows that it's really not, you know, as good as people originally thought it was and the early articles were indicating that it was. So he's a clown for doing that. But, like, I don't have a strong opinion on this. She's, it was just a throwaway line. I don't even think she thought she was being edgy. But, like, I guess the dynamic about this that makes me the most annoyed is that you do have this thing that happens where Nancy Pelosi gives people these, like, symbolic anti-Trump things. Like, that's what this is, ultimately. It's like a symbolic anti-Trump thing. Like, aha, morbidly obese, she called him that. <laughs> they must not get along at all, and they must, like, fight and hate each other. And it's like, well, actually, no, because she just gave him, you know, increased spying powers, and she's reauthorized the Patriot Act and made it worse a number of times. She, you know, supported the... 738 billion or 700 and some odd billion dollar um, defense budget, which was even more than he was originally asking for. There's a hell of a lot of bipartisan agreement, including $5 trillion to corporate America and bailing them out first during this COVID-19 pandemic. Like, she's agreeing with him on a lot of the major issues when it comes to policy. And since she's agreeing with him on those things, they got to keep it on the down low, keep it on the hush-hush. Nobody say anything about that except outlets like this, new media outlets. And then outside of that, I'll give you the symbolic anti-Trump stuff so you like me and think I hate Trump as much as you do. You understand? It's like when she, she did the thing where she was like, you know, his speech at the end of it, like, Oh my God, Queen of Shade Nancy ripped up the speech. Slay, Queen! Slay! And, and what was the other thing that she did? Oh, yeah, the, the clap. Meanwhile, she said after the fact, like, she didn't even understand why everybody was, like, acting like, yes, she's owning Trump, because she was like, no, I was actually, like, clapping for a speech. I thought, it was, I thought he made some good points. 
that's just too perfect. It's like, this is what silly people hang on to, to get their rocks off because they're partisan hacks. And that's the lens through which they follow politics. It's not about policy. It's not about helping people's lives. It's not about ending wars. It's not about, you know, making sure we don't have environmental catastrophe. I'm team blue. I hate team red. So now give me something, Team Blue leader, to make me feel good and make me feel like you hate Team Red as much as I do. It's an in-group, out-group tribalism thing. And so Nancy always gives people a symbolic things. She called him morbidly obese. She ripped up the speech. She clapped for him in a condescending way. Oh, yes, Nancy, yes. Vote for Shahid Batar. <laughs> you got to vote for Shahid Batar. Shahid Batar is uh, running against Nancy Pelosi. He's everything you could ever ask for in a left-wing candidate for all the right policies, cares deeply about the policies, um, comes from a working-class background. Nancy is a hundred millionaire or whatever the hell it is. She ain't looking out for you. She's secretly signing off on all the major ticket issues with Trump behind the scenes. This is a game. This is professional wrestling. And you're the sucker in the audience who thinks it's real. Saint the UFC... This is the WWE, with all due respect to the WWE, because I think you're a hell of a lot better than frickin' uh, the politicians in Washington, D.C. Damn, that rhymed. <laughs> anyway, um, vote for Shahid Batar. Nancy Pelosi is an absolute mess, and um, the reaction to this story is just so... It's like peak social media nonsense. It's like, who cares? I don't care that she said that. I don't care at all. But now your guys' reaction pissed me off, both the people who were playing the I'm offended card, fat shaming card, and the people who uh, were saying the opposite, that this is somehow, you know, glorious resistance. It's neither, and you can all be quiet. All right, next. So Mika Brzezinski went off on Donald Trump on MSNBC on the show Morning Joe. Um, This went viral. Now, she's upset that Trump has gone on Twitter and a couple times he's taken shots at Joe Scarborough because Joe Scarborough, of course, has taken shots at him. These guys used to be buddy-buddy. Now they hate each other. But one of the things Trump keeps bringing up is that when, um, I believe it was when Joe Scarborough was in Washington, D.C., when he was a congressman. I know a lot of you might not know that Joe Scarborough was a congressman. He was. But um, one of his staffers died. And, you know, I, there are, there's speculation that he was involved in it somehow. I, honestly, I don't know. I hesitate to talk about the story at all because I just don't know, and I never looked into it, and I don't really care. But it is exactly the kind of thing Trump would go after somebody on because, you know, this is the guy. People forget. This is the guy who went after Ted Cruz's dad and said, like, Ted Cruz's dad killed JFK. (laughs) What? I got a lot of issues with Ted Cruz. That is not one of them. (laughs) So anyway, this is what Trump does. He says, you know, he'll attack you and he'll attack you in a million ways and it'll be vicious and it'll be over the top. And this is one of those ways where he's going after Joe, Morning Joe, and he's, you know, basically trying to say, like, oh, you murdered your staffer or something, but he's not saying it directly. He's dancing around it. Whatever. That's not the point. Mika Brzezinski was watching Trump say all this stuff. She goes on her show, and she says this. 
Mike, he's uh, tweeting again all sorts of crazy things. Uh, once again, uh, tweeting conspiracy theories about Joe falsely accusing him of murder, talking about the death of a young staffer in his congressional office years ago, and calling him dangerous to walk the streets. And I'll just say, I'll take a point of personal privilege here. That's sick. Donald, you're a sick person. You're a sick person. To put this family through this, to put her husband through this, to do this just because you're mad at Joe because Joe got you again today, because he speaks the truth and he speaks plainly about your lack of interest and empathy in others and your lack of ability to handle this massive human catastrophe, the fact that you've made it worse and that you make it worse every day, and that you won't even wear a mask to protect people from your germs. But the germs you're spreading on Twitter, first of all, Twitter, you shouldn't be allowing this, and you should be taking these tweets down, and you should be ashamed of yourself. You'll be hearing from me on this, because this is BS. But Donald, you're a sick person. You're really a cruel, sick, disgusting person. And you can keep tweeting about Joe, but you're just hurting other people. And, of course, you're hurting yourself. So she, true to form, she went on Twitter afterwards and she said the following. I will be reaching out to the head of Twitter about their policies being violated every day by President Trump. Hope my call is taken. Please retweet if you agree. And, of course, the responses were over the top. Everybody was calling her this new thing. Well, I don't know how new it is anymore, but... You know, you call these like you call these like middle-aged or older white women who are like really tedious and annoying. You call them like Karens, and so everybody was calling Mika Brzezinski a Karen, who's like, I want to speak to the manager of Twitter, please. I have a I have an issue that needs to be taken care of. Um, it, you know. It, I don't, it, it's so wild to me, like, these are the things that she's, I mean, I get it, her and Joe Scarborough, I don't know if they're married now, or if they're just dating or whatever, um, but, so she's, like, super offended that Trump's going after Joe. Okay, nobody cares. <laughs> I don't know how to say this kindly, Mika. Nobody cares. Like, even Trump's own people probably read that thing where he's, you know, accusing Joe and the staffer and maybe something bad happened there. Open cold case. That's what Trump was saying as well. Open code case. Open code case. Investigate it. And it's like, even Trump's own people are not actually like, oh, yeah, Joe Scarborough is a murderer. That's terrible. I think their reaction is the same as the thing I mentioned before of, like, when he accused Ted Cruz's dad of, like, killing JFK. He's kind of just trolling. Now, I'm not excusing it because he's wrong. Like, he's dead wrong. <laughs> he's wrong to accuse, you know, Ted Cruz's dad of killing JFK. He's probably wrong about the Joe Scarborough thing, although I haven't looked into it and I really don't know and I can't say one way or the other. But, like, I think the thing that frustrates me about this is of all the things to get outraged by... It's like, you attacked my lover, and it was mean, and it was rude, and I didn't like it. And also, the way she goes after him, it's all like character stuff. It's like, you're a sick man. You're a sick, sick man. No empathy. You're spreading germs by not wearing a mask. 
You know what else you're doing? You're spreading germs on Twitter. <laughs> what? <laughs> Come on. And then this whole thing about reaching out to the head of Twitter. There is an outside chance, an outside chance that, yes, what he's saying is like libelous. Is it libel or slander? I always forget which one is the written word one versus which one is the spoken word. It's a very, very outside chance that it's like libel or slander. But, you know, reading through the tweets about it, he's sufficiently vague enough and that it's really not. Like, he, he would win any court battle if you sued him or whatever over this. He'd be like, no, I said it's an open cold case and they should look into it. That's all I said. So he, there's enough wiggle room there and it's vague enough where nobody could do anything about it. You can't freaking, you can't, like, really win a lawsuit against Trump for saying what he's saying here, even if Joe is totally innocent. And when it comes to Twitter, I mean, listen, Trump has violated the terms of service on Twitter a million times. That's clear. And if you want to make a case like, well, come on, man, like when he was threatening war with North Korea, like casually through tweets, like, whoa, whoa, what are you doing? That seems like it violates the terms of service. Sure. But it's like, he's the president of the United States. He's going to get his word out no matter what the hell he does, whether it's, you know, through an Oval Office address or through Facebook or through some other medium. What he says is by definition newsworthy. So, like, it's like when What's-Her-Face leaned into it on the campaign trail. Kamala Harris made it her main thing on the campaign trail became, we need to ban Donald Trump from Twitter. And her poll numbers went, even Democrats were like, really? Really? Is what you're going to do? This is how you're going to stand up to Trump? Is like, he shouldn't be allowed on Twitter. I'm going to call the manager, too. I know you think it comes across as like I'm crusading for justice and I'm being strong and I'm being a leader, but really it comes across as just as petty and narcissistic and, and silly as Trump. Like it is, it is censorship. It is deplatforming. It is like, I don't like what you say, so I'm going to try to stop you from having the ability to say anything. Well, then I kind of get why people are calling you Karen. <laughs> I kind of see that. Like that. So I don't know. On the one hand, I do feel bad for her because, <laughs> because I'm sure her husband, I'm not sure, but it's overwhelmingly likely her husband didn't do anything wrong in that situation. And so she's her boyfriend, whatever he is to her. Uh, and like, yeah, it would, it's upsetting. Sure. You don't want Trump dragging anybody's name through the mud if you like him and care about him. But at the same time, it's like, get over it. Honestly, nobody cares. Nobody's, you know, watching that and is, Like, it's Trump. It's Trump being Trump. That's not an excuse for him acting like that, but it is a description of what is. And it's very telling that the thing that brought this kind of a reaction out of Mika Brzezinski, it's not Trump continuing to bomb eight different countries. It's not him continuing the Iraq war and the Afghanistan war. It's not him signing a pro-torture executive order, as he did probably a year or two into his um, time in office. It's not the, you know offshoring of uh, outsourcing of 93,000 jobs that happened in just his first year. It's not the bill he signed that takes away your internet privacy rights, a bill that only had a 13% approval rating. The entire country hated it. Donald Trump signed that. It's not the 2017 GOP tax cut bill, which uh, gave 83% of the benefits to the top 1%, and in the long run, it screws working people and actually raises their taxes if they make $70,000 or less per year. Um, I can go on and on here with all the terrible things that he did, all the deregulation of Wall Street, the destruction of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, 
taking money for his inauguration from the predatory payday loan industry than dropping every single lawsuit that was going on against those, that industry. There's so many things to be like outraged by and upset by and to, and to rant about and to the corruption and the violation of the emoluments clause and, you know, being Saudi Arabia's bitch and Israel's bitch and like all this stuff. But the thing that she drew a line, I'm going to get you kicked off Twitter. How dare you? Was Trump basically talking smack and trolling, talking about Joe Scarborough. See, but that's the thing. And this is why this is annoying. It's like, there's a little elite insular club. And to them, the biggest crime you could ever commit, pissing off somebody else in that club. To them, that's the biggest crime you could ever commit. You want to commit war crimes? You want to do torture? You want to totally rig the economy? You want to let Wall Street loot the treasury? All of that, totally fine and dandy. It's just a difference of opinion. But how dare you besmirch the name of somebody else in the club? Now you cross the line. Now I'm going to go on my show and scream about it. And now I'm going to try to get you banned from Twitter. (laughs) As if an MSNBC host calling Jack, and Jack's going to be like, okay, I guess I'll ban him. Thank you, Mika. (laughs) Oh, man. I hate everything. Is that clear? Okay, next. Joseph Biden Beach. Here we go. So Donna Brazil went on Fox News and was asked a question about Joe Biden and corruption. You'll see here that um, the question is asked because of a, a Wall Street Journal op-ed that Jank Uger wrote where he was saying, hey, if Biden wants to appeal to the left, he needs to take a strong stand against corruption and stop taking big money and make make people believe that he's actually anti-corruption. That's the gist of what uh, Jenk Uger said. And uh, Donna Brazil's response here to a question about corruption is disheartening, to say the least. Uh, Politico has a story this morning saying progressives thought they had overtaken the Democratic Party. Now they're in despair. Uh, the story goes on to quote uh, interviews of more than 15 left-wing leaders, as they suggest, uh, who say they're in despair. And then there's this Wall Street Journal article uh, from the leader of the Young Turks, how Biden can win over progressives. He'll need to take a stand against corporate money and politics, corruption, and prove that he means it. Can Joe Biden give up corporate money and still beat the Trump money machine? The president's got a lot of money the bank. <laughs> the president got a lot of money in the bank, but he also has a lot of issues that he needs to resolve before he can bring uh, out his coalition. Look, I do believe that the progressive wing of the Democratic Party is a very active wing. We know that they support, uh, by and large, some of the policies that Joe Biden has advocated. I also believe that we have to respect the fact that Joe Biden won the primary. He won the primary and bringing progressives and moderates together. So this is not a time to take someone out of the boat when we need everybody to row the boat together. Yeah, so here's the short answer for that. No, he shouldn't stop taking corporate money. No. Okay. (laughs) Well, listen, uh, props for honesty. She's being honest. Because, you know, the same week that Cenk Uger's op-ed came out, is the same week we learned that Biden signed a big money deal 
that allows him to take over $600,000 a pop. Over $600,000. And it, it's a fundraising agreement with, I believe, 23 or 26 uh, Democratic state parties. It's a similar one that Hillary had. In the case of Hillary, they had an agreement, and then she basically kept most, if not all, of the money. So it's a similar thing for Biden. It's a way to skirt you know, these uh, whatever few lacks fundraising laws still exist on the books. And um, he is going to be swing, swimming in that big money. Absolutely. And at least Donna Brazil is being upfront and honest about this and saying, no, he shouldn't stop taking the money and he's going to keep taking it. And fact of the matter is, guys, if he were to, let's say he were, to genuinely say, you know what? No billionaire money, no corporate money. I'm done. None of that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to only raise through small dollar donations. He wouldn't raise Dickie McGee's axe. Because he's not, his strength of his movement was not built on a grassroots army. That was Bernie. The strength of Biden is built on somewhat apolitical, you know, boomer suburbanites. Professional class people who are just like, I don't know. I want to be Trump because I hate Trump. So I guess we go with the safe thing, safe thing, which is Joe. So those people aren't getting involved. Those people aren't making phone calls. Those people aren't grassroots donors. So where does Biden go for all of his money? Same old, same old place that all the politicians go to, except a tiny number, namely the military industrial complex, Wall Street, um, you know, corporate executives, health insurance industry, the big pharma. Like this is he's a standard politician in that respect. So, I mean, again, I guess you give credit to Donna Brazil because she's not BSing us. But on the other hand, what I have to say to these people is, okay, but then you cannot be mad when people like me are like, I'm not going to vote for Biden. I'm going to sit out. Because to us, and this is the main point, guys. This is the main point. If you take anything away from this segment, it's this. To us, it's not just a disagreement when Biden is like, I'm going to take big money from billionaires, from corporations, from these corrupting um, influences. That's not just a disagreement. It's corruption. See, uh, I, I reckon that to Donna Brazil or to any people who are part of the Democratic establishment, they honestly believe, like, it's just a difference of opinion. This is how it works. Like, this is how the system works. This is how it's worked since the 1980s is, you know, you run for office, you go to the people with the money, they give you the money, and then that's how you win. You, gotta, you can't do unilateral disarmament, as people say, and like forego all that money and just give a giant advantage to the Republicans. Like, what are you talking about? This is the way it works. You might not like it, but it is what it is. That's how they view it. They view it as like, okay, so if you want to not take corporate PAC money and billionaire money, okay, I guess good for you, but you're naive, and that's silly. We have a difference of opinion. I'm for getting as much money as I possibly can to beat the big bad Republicans. This is, how they, this is how they think, guys. And, like, I'm trying to t let them know, okay, that's your perception of it. That is not our perception of it. Our perception of it is when you take the billionaire money, when you take the Wall Street money, when you take the military-industrial complex money, when you take big pharma money and, and for-profit health insurance company money, that's you being corrupt. And then when you legislate, when you govern – you're going to then be in favor of policies that 
are to the benefit of those donors, that entire donor class, all those elite groups. And to serve them always conflicts with doing what's best for the American people, for regular Americans, for working people. There's an inherent conflict and contradiction there. If you're helping the for-profit health insurance industry, that by definition hurts regular people because that rapacious industry is ripping people off. They're an unnecessary mafia middleman. When you help the military industrial complex, that hurts regular people because it, it, send it sends us to all these unnecessary wars more and puts you know, people's lives on the line and makes us the international imperialist bully. So you have to understand, it's not just a disagreement. You've crossed a line, which is a red line for a lot of lefties, where lefties have to at least think you are, even if you disagree with us, at least I know you're representing, you're doing what you think is best for the people. In the case of Biden, in the case of every corrupt politician, we don't think they even consider what's good or bad for regular people. We think that consideration is, what about my donors? What do my donors think? When I run again, I want to have the money to win, so they got to give me more money, and I'll look out for them when I'm in office. And they just think that's par for the course. That's just how it works. And if you don't like it, you know, you have a difference of opinion, but you're naive. That's how they think. That's how they think. And, you know, again, all I want to do is impress upon them, because Biden is who Biden is. He's not going to change. That's obvious. All I want to do is impress upon them. You damn well better not voter shame people. You damn well better not yell at people to fall in line. Because bottom line is, we don't agree with you. This is not just a difference of opinion. This is you guys fully embracing corruption and us saying, I think corruption is bad, which is about as uncontroversial a statement as saying murder is bad, robbery is bad, rape is bad. That's how uncontroversial that is to us. That corruption is on par with some of the worst crimes and it's not a difference of opinion. It's not something we could agree to disagree on. It's you crossing a red line very clearly. And then if you want to turn back around and yell at us to cross that line with you, you got another thing coming. Because that is definitely not happening. All right, next. So Rahm Emanuel... Um, is terrible. <laughs> I'm always reminded of a story that happened when he was with the Obama administration where he called progressives like effing idiots. I think it was in the midst of the healthcare debate, although I could be wrong. He basically told them, like, piss off. We don't need you. We don't like you. And, you know, ever since then, my response has been, cool. I don't like you either. <laughs> so, all right. Let's hear him out today. Today, he went on ABC, or this week, he went on ABC, and he spoke about um, the upcoming election and the response to the coronavirus. And um, I think this shows you, because he's viewed as like this p savvy political strategist genius. That's what Rahm Emanuel is. Well, let's see where his mind's at today in the midst of this crisis. Basically saying that the White House is too much about conflict and not enough about compassion. And I would agree with him on that. And I think on the Democratic side, I'm messaging. We look a little too much messaging.
too much about resistance, about reopening, too much about reluctance about reopening, and we should go to a message of rebuilding America. To, if the president wants to talk about reopening, we want to talk about rebuilding America and the relief. Let's take the unemployed. If you're unemployed in the service sector, JCPenney, some of these others, those jobs aren't coming back. So we're going to give you a coupon. Go become a computer coder in six months. We'll pay for it. I've never seen a clear example of a giant gift to the right. There's a whole, like, meme about it. Like, why don't you just learn to code? He said it! <laughs> he said it and he meant it! Unbelievable. Unbelievable! The thing that became like a meme to make fun of the out-of-touch Democrats, he literally, obviously totally unaware of that, and he proposed that idea sincerely. Here's an idea. How about in the midst of a pandemic where people were laid off through no fault of their own, you do UBI, you do Medicare for all, you do a rent freeze and a mortgage freeze, and you do hazard pay to frontline workers. How about that? How's that for a plan? You know, we should have originally done the European idea, which is basically temporarily nationalize the wages for the small businesses and pay like 75 or 80% of the wages for the duration of the crisis. And this way people get furloughed instead of fired. There's a story that just came out of Germany. I think their unemployment rate right now is like 3.9%. Meanwhile, the actual unemployment rate here is over 20%. So if you wanted to actually, if you were serious and you wanted to actually fix this problem and you wanted to address this properly and if you cared about the people who are being destroyed here, we know what the, we know what the ideas are that work. We know what the policies are that work. Instead, he goes out there and says, learn to code. Wow. Now, you might be sitting there going, come on, Kyle. Well, yeah, okay, so he's saying that, but this is not like what the politicians in D.C. are pushing for, right? Like, this is not, at least we have more serious people handling this. You see where I'm going with this? Take a look at this new article from CNBC. Senators release bill to offer, get this, $4,000 worth of skills training credit to workers displaced by coronavirus. Four senators introduce a bill to create $40,000, or excuse me, $4,000, a $4,000 tax credit for workers who lost their jobs due to the coronavirus pandemic to put towards skills training. The legislation introduced by Senators Amy Klobuchar, Ben Sass, Cory Booker, and Tim Scott would apply to training such as apprenticeships, certificates, and two- and four-year programs. This is embarrassing. Like, what we're watching right now is embarrassing. I want you to take note of how everything unfolded. The coronavirus hits, and then the market starts to plunge. What happened next? There was panic. Everybody agreed, we got to do something. we got to do it now. And then what did Washington, D.C. do? Well, in the case of the Fed, Federal Reserve, they said, we're just going to pump a trillion dollars of liquidity per day into the market. So basically, letting investors know, letting the market know, no matter what, we're not going to let you fail. We have our own sovereign currency. We're going to act you know, within the confines of modern monetary theory. We'll just keep pumping as much money into the stock market as humanly possible, literally a trillion dollars per day, to shore up the marketplace. So we have fully implemented corporate socialism. Socialism for the top 1%. That's what we did. What else did they do? They did the coronavirus bailout bill, 
where it was effectively $5 trillion that Steve Mnuchin, the tre- Treasury Secretary, the Goldman Sachs lackey, he gets determined to determine which corporations get that bailout money. Virtually no overhead at all, all symbolic, and Trump even said we're going to ignore it, and all you got was a one-time $1,200 payment. That's crumbs. So there was a giant, colossal propping up of the stock market and the corporations. And then the people got screwed. And now, later on, now they're going, all right, well, we gotta, I guess we got to do something else for the people because now unemployment's over 20%, and people are getting obliterated, and this is a financial crisis, the likes of which we haven't seen since the Great Depression, and what do they propose? Is there any ideas that will actually work? Is it UBI? Is it nationalizing the wages? Is it Medicare for all? Is it rent-free mortgage freeze? No. It's a $4,000 skills training credit. I just spit all over myself. To workers displaced by the coronavirus. $4,000 skills training credit. Bipartisan. That's what this is. So it's always like mealy mouth little nonsense crumbs for you and just total corporate socialism for those at the top. Weird how you guys have the rugged, individualistic, laissez-faire, free market capitalism where if you fail, you fail, get over it, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, but the rich can never fail, ever. They get to loot the treasury if they need to. And by the way, that's why you see now a total decoupling of the stock market from the economy. Like, again, the unemployment rate is going up to Great Depression territory. It already surpassed. 2008, 2009, Great Recession territory. And at the same time, the market's now soaring. That makes no sense. Well, when you have the Fed saying, no matter what, I'll keep pumping a trillion dollars of liquidity per day into the marketplace, they know, oh, so we got nothing to worry about. We can't fail. But the people literally failing right this second. Unbelievable, man. Washington... The, deg- the extent and the degree to which Washington doesn't work for you is historic. It's legendary. There's a reason they have like a 22% approval rating. They're all so corrupt beyond imagination, and it's obvious. All right, next. So I had to share this with everybody. Jordan on uh, Jordan Yule, Jordan Ull. I'm sorry, Jordan. I literally do not know how to pronounce your name. I never learned it, even though, like, I've, I've known Jordan. I've followed him for a long time on Twitter. He's followed me for a long time on Twitter. I've done his podcast with Rob Rousseau. Still don't know how to pronounce that last name. But I'm going with Jordan Yule. I hope I got it. Anyway, um, he pointed this out on Twitter This shows you the kind of guy that Joe Biden is. Now, I don't know if this is a new addition to his website or if it's been up there the entire time, but in the policy section of his website, I guess credit that he even has one. (laughs) Um, Here's what he says. Biden wants to urge Arab states to move beyond quiet talks and take bolder steps toward normalization with Israel. Firmly reject the BDS movement which singles out Israel, home to millions of Jews, and too often veers into anti-Semitism while letting Palestinians off the hook for their choices. 
Yeah, Joe, that's the problem. This country and Washington, they're just too kind to the Palestinians. That's what it is. The people who have been under brutal oppression for decades and denied statehood for decades, somehow they're, you know, they're the ones who are getting off easy. This is all, at the, like, we're reading this at the same time we're being told that Joe Biden is reaching out to the left. Why? Because he's got task forces that he's going to proceed to completely ignore if they come up with any good idea at all? Is that reaching out to the left? That's what that is? What a joke! What a joke! But he's literally pulling the BDS is anti-Semitic card. So for those of you who don't know, Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions is a movement to put economic pressure on Israel to give Palestinians their human rights. Um, And the whole idea behind the movement is a lot of the people in the movement say, hey, we think violence is immoral. We think violence is immoral. So we don't want to engage in violence, even though they think they have the right to because it's self-defense. Somebody comes into your house with a gun and says, get out. You're well within your rights to say, how about you get out? And I got a gun too. So, but they say, no, we think it's more productive to go about it this way, which is international economic pressure. Now, why are they doing it? Because it worked in apartheid South Africa. That's why. Now, by the way, there's also, they don't make any distinctions here. There's the idea of a BDS of all of Israel, but then there's also the idea of a BDS of just illegal settlements and occupied territory. For the life of me, I cannot understand, I, I find it incomprehensible that anybody would oppose, at the very least, the BDS of the occupied territory and the illegal settlements. How do you oppose that? You're, you're in opposition to putting on economic pressure to try to stop what we all agree is illegal under international law. What we all agree is illegal under international law. Now, by the way, another point that they always make, which is nonsense, is they say, oh, it singles out Israel. Literally 100% of the people who I've spoken to who believe in BDS, if you ask them, are you in favor of a similar thing against Saudi Arabia? They go, absolutely. Absolutely. It's an oppressive theocracy. They, they behead people in the public square for, for sorcery and apostasy and drug smuggling. Well, you think that, like, the people who are pro-BDS somehow have, like, a soft spot for Saudi Arabia? Utter not. It's totally made up. It's totally made up. But they want to try to make the claim, oh, you're just going harder on Israel than anybody else. Even though it's not true, they want to make that claim. And by the way, even if there is, in some instances, some people only focus on them, it's because we have our closest relationship with them. So I think there's a case, if you want to put more focus on the cases of Israel and Saudi Arabia, those two specifically, they're our closest allies. We have the most influence over what they do, so that's why it makes the most sense. We can more directly impact what we do here at home domestically and also what's going on with our allies because they're our allies. We have more sway with them. Whereas, you know, when you talk about official enemy states, we're in less of a position to influence them because they're official enemy states. There's no open line of communication. So, you know, that's why you can 
more directly and, and quickly change stuff either at home domestically or among our allies. It's a lot harder to change stuff with countries you have no line of communication with or with countries that are official enemy countries. So this is why there's a strong focus on Israel, because we are so, we're freaking married at the hip to them, and we basically let them get away with whatever the hell they want to get away with, except that at the end of Obama's term, that one symbolic gesture was a little slap on the wrist, like, and by the way, the illegal settlements are kind of a bad thing, but we're not going to actually do anything about it. We're just going to say officially that the illegal settlements are illegal. And there was a fire somewhere. Oh, my God, how dare you say things that are factually correct. So um, this, is, this is Joe Biden, and this is what people fear about him, just a total continuation of the status quo in so many ways. When it comes to health care, you know, the idea of I'm just going to expand Obamacare. But the foundation of it sucks. The foundation of it is for-profit health insurance companies making money off sick people, an unnecessary mafia middleman. I want to get rid of that mafia. Joe Biden's like, no, let's keep the mafia and just make some tweaks around the edges. Status quo on health care, status quo on foreign policy, calling supporters of BDS anti-Semitic, which is nothing but a gross smear. By the way, you want to have a conversation about the bastardization of identity politics? Let's have that conversation right here, because this is the bastardization of identity politics. To call BDS anti-Semitic means you're saying people who want to stop illegal actions under international law from being committed, oh no, they actually they're only doing it because they secretly hate Jews. That's the bastardization of identity politics. That's what that is. So, you know, I just, I have no tolerance for this stuff. I have no tolerance for this stuff. At a time when Palestinians are getting absolutely crushed and obliterated, and there's been decades of oppression, and what does Joe Biden do? He comes in and says, status quo is awesome, and if you disagree and you want to change stuff to give Palestinians their human rights, maybe you just hate Jews. God damn it, man. Said it before, I'll say it again. In 2016, a lot of people thought, hey, whatever, man, I'll suck it up and do a lesser evil vote, simply for the fact that... um, I think this is like the last one I'll have to do. By the next election, we'll have a much better option. <laughs> Boy, was that wrong. Couldn't have been more wrong. All right, next. Okay. Carl Rove is a well-known Bush administration ghoul and neoconservative. He's the guy who famously took a look at George W. Bush and said, I can make that guy president. Um, he is like one of these evil masterminds of uh, the right-wing playbook. He went on Fox News, and he's in a segment here with the hosts, and he melted down over Obama voicing the most tepid criticism I've ever heard um, about the Trump administration and how they're handling COVID. Let's watch. It's a bit surprising to see President Obama, for me anyway, take a shot at President Trump in a a virtual commencement address about his pandemic coverage. I think he's supposed to be inspiring the next generation of graduates. I don't know if that that fits in, but it must sound familiar because didn't President Obama take countless shots at you and the Bush administration? Well, yeah, but look, it's, uh, you put your finger on it. It is so unseemly for a former president to take the the, the virtual 
commencement ceremony for a series of uh, historically black colleges and universities and turn it into a political drive-by shooting. I mean, I, 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 you know, this is a moment where these young graduates could be inspired for, to a life of service, to you know, recognize that life is going to bring challenges and how we handle the challenges is going to, is going to demonstrate our character. There are lots of positive messages that the former president could have delivered, but the news that we have out of this speech, out of this appearance is, he says, quote, the pandemic has finally fully torn back the curtain that so many of the folks in charge know what they're doing, don't know what they're doing. Lots of them aren't even pretending to be in, in charge. Yeah. Yeah, that's correct. <laughs> okay, so, you know, as I was watching this segment, I was reminded of the entire Obama era. And, like, don't get it twisted, guys. I have a lot of criticisms of Obama. They're criticisms from his left. They're very detailed policy criticisms. You could agree or disagree with those criticisms. But the, the criticisms I have are certainly reasonable. They're certainly substantive. The entire time Obama was in office, Fox News was hitting him with nothing but the most absurd, silly, partisan hack criticisms you've ever heard. So look at the argument here. By the way, did you catch the thing he said in the middle? Oh, Obama turned a commencement speech into a political drive-by shooting. Really? 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 Now listen, I'm inclined to chalk up anything that seems like it's off the cuff to being off the cuff. I'm not out here word policing, all right? But when I hear that, I go, oh, he definitely thought that up beforehand, and he could not wait to say that our first black president did a political drive-by shooting. You know damn well, I'm convinced he thought of that line beforehand, and he couldn't wait to deliver it. Because of, and here's that famous term that people have used for a while, because of the dog whistle aspect of it. That's what I think. But now, to the actual criticism itself, again, I got a million criticisms of Obama. I could sit here and ring them off for you if you'd like. Probably first on the list is the increase of the drone strikes, killing 90% civilians, letting Wall Street criminals off the hook, letting the George W. Bush administration torturers off the hook, so on and so forth. I can go on and on, but let's put that aside for this segment because it's not relevant to the conversation we're having here. The whole point from Fox News is not like, oh, this particular criticism that he made of Trump is bad, although they think that. To them, it's the whole idea, the whole concept of Obama having any criticism of the current, of the current president is beyond the pale, not allowed, not okay, outrageous, offensive, that the former president would say anything about the current president. That's so silly, I can't, like, Obama, by the way, has actually gone out of his way to be like that and really not do direct criticisms of Trump. Really gone over the top with it. It's really infuriating. It's really annoying. It's like he is trying to stay out as much as possible when it comes to criticizing the current president. The line that they're talking about was such a, like, throwaway like, yeah, what this crisis is showing us is that we have some bad leaders who aren't handling this well. 
we didn't have the right number of tests. We didn't have the stockpile of antiviral drugs. We didn't have the right number of hospital beds. We didn't have the right number of ventilators. He, for the first month of the damn crisis, they were lying and downplaying just as much as China was in their early days of it when they were lying to the world. What do you expect them to say? Do you expect them to just feel yeah, everything's great? Our death toll has got to be around 100,000 or over 100,000 people dead now. What do you expect them to say? Yeah, that number's not bad. Like, what the hell, man? (laughs) They're so ridiculous. I do not miss the Obama era with the BS criticisms from the right. This immediately reminded me of the terrorist fist jab comment. You guys remember that? Um, It was at a rally. This was, I think, when he was running in 08. He was at a rally, and Michelle gave a speech, and they gave each other a fist bump when Obama came up to talk. And, um... Fox News said, is that a terrorist fist jab? Sean Hannity attacked Obama for the way he eats his burger. He had, like, mustard on it or something. Listen, the same kind of, the same stuff you see today with Trump derangement syndrome, where they go after every single tweet, regardless of what it says, they're outraged by it, they're offended by it, they made up all of Russiagate. Like, there's the same, it was the same thing with Obama, except with Obama, the Russiagate was either Benghazi or the, um, the birtherism thing, where they, they try to argue he's like, Obama wasn't born in the U.S., he's a Kenyan Muslim Marxist or something. Like, they're just as bad, if not way worse, on Fox News with this stuff. And now, like, this reminded me of that entire era. Political drive-by shooting, he said. It was the most tepid criticism I've ever heard. It was incredibly accurate of a criticism. It was like in passing, and they're melting down and doing segments over it on Fox News, where they're not just disagreeing with the criticism. They're saying the entire concept of any criticisms is illegitimate and off the table. They are, as much as they think they're like tough guys and they love to go after snowflake culture, they are snowflakes. They seriously are. They can't handle anything. God forbid the former president says anything, even a throwaway line, even in passing, not mentioning it by name. How dare you, you stop it! Why would you say such mean things? Drive-by shooting. I do not miss that era at all. And things have always been super deranged, and this is another example of it here. All right, next. There was a dam that broke in Michigan, and now thousands and thousands of people have to evacuate or they're going to be underwater. So this is a terrible story. This is from Global News. Let's take a look. in Midland County breached. Residents in the area have been instructed to evacuate immediately. Residents in Edenville and Sanford have been ordered to move out by local law enforcement. And if you are in those areas, you must evacuate as soon as possible. Please, get somewhere safe now. The city of Midland, 
both the south and west sides have been evacuated, as have uh, the village of Sanford and Dow Chemical. In the next 12 to 15 hours, downtown Midland could be under approximately nine feet of water. We are anticipating an historic high water level. Tonight, I issued an emergency declaration to ensure that state and local officials have the resources that they need in order to respond to this extreme flooding. I want to say again, if you are in one of these impacted areas, please, right now, evacuate. So that's absolutely terrifying. And um, Governor Whitmer there, you heard her mention Dow Chemical. Well, at the same time that this is happening, we get this news. Dow admits floodwaters in Michigan are commingling with toxic chemical storage ponds. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. So I don't think people really understand at this moment, and it hasn't been sufficiently covered in the media, just how devastating this could be. Because you could have a giant environmental and ecological disaster if, you know, you really get these toxic chemicals from this Dow plant, which is going to be flooded, if that, if that gets out, and it is, it will, oh boy. So you have everything in this story, man. You have everything. The, obviously, the most important thing that's staring us in the face is our terrible infrastructure. It's, this damn shouldn't have failed. Shouldn't have failed. I have no idea when it was built, when they updated it, but whatever the answers are, whatever those answers are, they didn't they didn't do a good job or they didn't do it at all. And they should have. I mean, I've said this a million times on this show and you guys are probably sick of hearing it, but the society of civil engineers, um, grades us infrastructure, like every other year or something like that. And, uh, the last report card, it was a D plus. We, our infrastructure is just abysmal for a modern country. We need to upgrade the whole thing, you know, for a president, honestly, that could be whoever wants to take the mantle of being the next FDR and really updating our entire infrastructure. If I was president, I would try to make us number one in the world, like give us an A plus infrastructure, the best in the world, spend whatever the hell it takes because you give people a lot of jobs. It's, it's tremendous stimulus for the economy. And you also have the upside of fixing the country and making it look beautiful. And right now it's decrepit and falling apart. I mean, this is pathetic. So that's one thing that's just screaming out of this story, which is our infrastructure is abysmal. It's terrible. Damn shouldn't have failed. Um, But then the other thing is total lack of regulation. If you have a situation, the fact that this Dow chemical plant and the fact that the government did not prepare for such a scenario, if it were to happen, there weren't sufficient regulations in place to make sure that under no circumstance do we have a Dow chemical that's in a high risk area for flooding. And then whoopsie. We didn't have the right uh, regulation in place, and now we might have a total toxic mess on our hands, and, you know, this place might be uninhabitable in due time. Who knows? But, like, it's got everything. Terrible infrastructure, total lack of regulation. Like, every single point the left hits is, is, is proven here, that the policies we care about are the things we need in order to fix everything. And this is just abysmal and pathetic and sad. And I feel terrible for the people whose houses are, um, you know, going to be gone. But under nine feet of water, like these 
towns and cities and it's crazy that we still have stuff like this happening. All this stuff should have been planned for. All this stuff we should have been protected against. And uh, we're not. And we have no idea what we're doing. And we're a mess. And just add this to the list of the other thousand terrible things that have happened in 2020. Okay. Now, I'm going to do a final story with you. Actually, I'm going to do two real quick. I have a little bit of breaking news here from the Washington Post that I want to share with you. Um, It just, this one doesn't feel good, y'all. This one doesn't feel good. So Washington Post says the following, Senator Bernie Sanders whose delegates staged a racuous rebellion against Hillary Clinton at the 2016 Democratic Convention, is trying to engineer a different outcome this year by turning down the volume on his social media-driven army of 2020 delegates. The campaign of the senator from Vermont has told some supporters picked to represent him this year to sign agreements barring attacks on other candidates or party leaders, combative confrontations on social media, are talking to reporters without approval. The move, which carried a threat of being removed as a delegate, has the effect of blunting one of the most powerful, uh, if divisive, tools of Sanders' movement. Its unrestrained online presence and tendency to stoke controversy through other media, which has at times spiraled into abuse of his opponents, perceived or real. Quote, refrain from making negative statements about other candidates, party leaders, campaigns, campaign staffers, supporters, news organizations, or journalists. This campaign is about the issues and finding solutions to America's problems, said the social media policy sent to some delegates. Our job is to differentiate the senator from his opponents on the issues, not through personal attacks. Do your best to avoid online arguments or confrontations, the policy said. If engaging in an adversarial conversation, be respectful when addressing opposing viewpoints or commenting on the opposition. The agreements angered some Sanders delegates, and the campaign is now working with delegates to adjust its demands. So this is Bernie Sanders saying, I've been convinced, I believe that the media is correct when they talk about the Bernie bro narrative, and so now I'm going to try to discipline the people who are supporters of me. Bernie, your supporters, it's been proven through a data analysis that they actually mentioned in the recent Vice documentary on the Bernie blackout. Your supporters aren't any more or less hostile than the supporters of any other candidate. You have more supporters online, so sometimes it might feel like that, but that's just because you have more supporters. It's the same percentage of Kamala supporters and Warren supporters and Biden supporters who do and say the same things. Dog, it's the Internet. It's how it works. It's how it goes. Now, I'm no fan of Twitter beef. I think people are totally wasting their time if they're fighting on Twitter, and they should probably stop and do something more productive. But you're drafting agreements? You're trying to come up with, like, a contract or something, and you're trying to discipline your people? Okay, listen, I got news for Bernie Sanders, and everybody knows I love Bernie with all my heart. I would have given my right leg 
for him to become president of the United States, okay? I love him. But Bernie, you got to get this through your head, man. We don't agree with you. On this topic, we don't agree with you. A recent poll came out that found 51%, a majority of Bernie supporters are considering a third-party option, voting for the Green Party or an independent who might run or even sitting out the election. 51%. You think by doing a strongly worded email that 51% Oh, yes, Bernie, I shall fall in line and listen to you. No, Bernie, because a lot of your supporters don't respond to you in the same way that you respond to Joe Biden and respond to Nancy Pelosi and respond to Democratic leadership. Where you go, you know, I would really like Medicare for All, and I'd really appreciate Medicare for All, but if you're not going to give me Medicare for All, then maybe I would say, okay, I will support you anyway, and I will do a task force, even though it's going to get us absolutely nothing. I'll pretend like maybe it'll give us something, even though it probably won't and almost certainly won't, but I'll tell myself that maybe it will, and I'll lie to myself before I sleep at night because I don't want to look like Ralph Nader, and I don't want to be blamed for if you lose. They're going to blame you either way, Bernie. If Biden wins, you'll get no credit, no matter how hard you go in the pain for him. If Biden loses, they're going to blame you, even with you turning on your own damn supporters. By the way, the most frustrating part of this, the exact thing that Bernie is trying to tamp down here, is the only thing that might actually get us victories when it comes to policy. You know when politicians buckle? When they feel like they don't have a choice. You know what makes them feel like they don't have a choice? When they get an overwhelming tsunami of criticism that says, how dare you do this? You need to do that. And Bernie's trying to shut that up. Bernie's trying to take that energy and blunt it. Honestly, I I hate to use this word, but it's pathetic. This is pathetic. Even, you're not even, they even listed, oh, don't go after Biden, don't go after other Democratic leaders, and don't go after the media. Well, what are we supposed to do when they lie to us? Are we supposed to sit there and take it? What are we supposed to do when they go in a direction that we flat out don't agree with, that we don't agree with? Like Biden with his new thing on BDS where he calls it anti-Semitic. Am I not allowed to say, hey, I totally disagree with that? Am I not allowed to say, hey, Joe, I totally disagree with the fact that you just signed a fundraising agreement to take over $600,000 a pop from big money donors? Am I not allowed to disagree with that? I got to sit there and take it. I'm not allowed to voice disapproval? You're going to send me an email saying, whoa, 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 careful. Don't step on too many toes. This email, this, the stuff that Bernie's trying to get his own supporters to do, Bernie himself would never have done this if somebody was trying to get him to do it when he was younger. He'd be like, are you kidding me? I'm an independent thinker. I have my own mind. I'll make my own decisions. I'll say whatever I want, thank you very much. It's that kind of rebellious spirit which led him to lead against the Iraq war, for example. It takes that kind of courage to stand up when they're wrong. And guess what? The Democratic establishment is wrong all the time. But listen, fact of the matter is, Bernie genuinely likes Joe Biden. He likes him. All policy disagreements aside, he likes him. He likes the guy. When it comes to 
Him supporting the Iraq war? Oh, okay, it's a disagreement. When it comes to him supporting NAFTA? Oh, okay, it's a disagreement. When it comes to him supporting the Graham-Leach-Bliley Act, which repealed Glass-Steagall, which was Wall Street deregulation, which led to the crash in 08? Oh, all right, you know, that's a disagreement. When it comes to him pushing TPT, it, TPP? Oh, all right, well, that's, a, you know, that's just a disagreement. What am I going to do? But I like him. He's my buddy. I like him. I disagree. I don't like him. He's not my buddy. 51% of your own supporters are considering a third-party option. By the way, it's not ultimately going to be that. I guarantee you it's only going to be like 15% or so that don't vote for Biden. Most of Bernie supporters will vote for Biden, will vote for Biden. But as of right now, 51% are considering another option because we don't agree with you, Bernie. Listen, what he's doing, all of the criticism from 2016, he took to heart. He thought when the media was scolding him and finger-wagging at him and saying, Bernie Sanders, you brought us Donald Trump by criticizing Hillary Clinton accurately, by the way, but you criticize Hillary, then Trump uses those criticisms. It's your fault. You're the reason that Trump won. How about you say, no, Hillary actually did those things she was accused of. It's her fault. Maybe she shouldn't have done those things then. How about that? It's not somebody's fault for pointing out the truth. It's that person's fault for doing the bad thing. But he took all those criticisms to heart. He thought he was responsible. So now what's he doing? He's overcompensating. I will do everything I can in my power to try to get Joe Biden elected, to try to shut up all the opposition from within my own supporters, to try to say all oh, the bros are you know, out of control. I agree with you about the Bernie bro narrative, mainstream media, when it was a smear from day one, but you're feeding into the smear. Honestly, Bernie's a cuck. Bernie's weak. I would never in a million years question his sincerity. I think he's doing what he thinks is right. I think he genuinely believes Donald Trump is the most, the worst evil you could ever imagine. And Biden might be a slightly lesser evil, but he's my friend. I disagree with him on some stuff, but broadly speaking, he's okay. So, but he does not want to be viewed like Ralph Nader. He doesn't want to be blamed again. And so he's going hard in the paint, trying to, he's going against his own people, his own people. That's really sad. The person who I feel for the most is the working class person who's got no money in the bank, who put all their hopes in Bernie Sanders, gave him their last $20, and only for him to turn around and now tell people, stop even criticizing Biden. How are you going to make him better if you don't criticize him? How are you going to make the media better if you don't criticize him? How are you going to make the Democratic leadership better if you don't criticize him? They just did a bill. They just did a bill. They just did it, where they gave $5 trillion to corporations and crumbs to regular people in the middle of a pandemic where we have over 20% actual unemployment, and we're not allowed to criticize them? We're not allowed to speak up against that? We just got to fall in line? We just got to be lemmings and shut off our brains? No, Bernie. No, 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 no. I want you to get louder. I want you to speak up more. I want you to have your voice heard. I want you to say certain things are not negotiable. Certainly, you're not going to, I'm not going to hand over the keys to the treasury, to Wall Street, and let them loot the treasury and rob everybody blind and then tell everybody, well, at least we got some unemployment benefits extended in that. What a joke this is. He's, he falls in line. He's, he's a party man. He's a party man. All the criticisms he took to heart. Listen, Bernie, I hate to be so blunt about this, but you messed up real bad, man. When you dropped out of this race, and you got no tangible concessions from Biden. The most you got was freaking task forces, bro. Task forces. So that whatever, they, whatever conclusions they come to, Biden could just ignore it. 
He could just ignore it. There's nothing tangible. And deep down, I think you know that, Bernie. You know what you could have done? You could have handed him a list of 10 executive orders, including legalizing marijuana, an executive order against outsourcing jobs and, and buying American. There's a bunch of stuff you, you could have done through executive order. You could have given Biden a list of 10 of them and said, listen, man, if you don't support these, I'm going to sit out the election. You're on your own. If you do support them, I'll campaign for you as hard as I possibly can. Then you would have had something tangible. But you know what, Bernie? You're a cuck. And you bought into the media criticism against you. And you thought you were responsible for Trump the first time around. You don't want to be responsible for him this time around. By the way, you weren't responsible for him last time, and you wouldn't be responsible for him this time either. But this is what happens. So now you think you're responsible for it, so you're falling in line, and you're not demanding anything. Because you were unwilling under any circumstance to walk away and sit this election out, which means we get no concessions at all. None. 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 And instead of being honest about that and realizing wow, we got nothing, so if people want to sit out, they should be able to sit out. You scold your reporter, your reporters, supporters, for not falling in line. Hell of a revolution you got going on here. A revolution where you're not allowed to criticize the status quo in the establishment. Nice revolution you got going on there. Nice revolution. I'll say it one more time in case anybody's triggered. I think Bernie thinks he's doing the right thing. It's not nefarious. He didn't sell out or anything like that. No. He's doing what he thinks is the right thing in a difficult situation. I just totally, totally, totally disagree with him. And I think this is pathetic. And I think this is weak. And I think if he has a moment of honesty and he really sits down and dwells on it, he'd acknowledge that reality as well. You let us down, Bernie. We don't agree with you. So no, we will not be listening to your commands because your commands are stupid. All right, final, final story. This next story is just too perfect and it totally encapsulates Elizabeth Warren's political career. So this is from Politico and they say, In the thick of primary season, Elizabeth Warren and Joe Biden brawled over Medicare for All. He called her approach angry, elitist, condescending. She shot back, anyone who defends the health care status quo with industry talking points is running in the wrong presidential primary. Six months later, with Biden, the presumptive Democratic nominee, and Warren in the running for VP, she is striking a more harmonious chord. Quote, I think right now people want to see improvements in our health care system, and that means Strengthening the Affordable Care Act, she told students at the University of Chicago's Institute of Politics this week, while adding that she still wants to get to single-payer eventually. The shift in the latest public signal Warren has sent Biden's way in recent weeks that she wants the job of vice president and wants Biden to see her as a loyal governing partner despite their past clashes, which go back decades. Saddest thing I've ever read right on brand. Warren, there was a time when I thought, and most people on the left thought, oh, she's a principled crusader for what's right. She got us the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. That's awesome. Then over time, that myth was obliterated because that's not who she is. That's not who she is at all. She threw her friend Bernie under the bus and basically implied he's a sexist to try to take him down at the last minute 
when there was the consolidation of the centrist before Super Tuesday, even though she had no chance, she stayed in and did kind of serve as a spoiler against Bernie. If she had dropped down and endorsed Bernie, it would have been a hell of a lot closer race. And then we get the video of her when she's asked point blank, hey, do you want to be VP? She's like, yes. And now she's like, what do I have to say? What do I have to do? What position do I have to take? I'm whatever. I'm a blank slate. I just want the power. I just want the narcissism. I just want the name recognition. I just want the position. So I'll, I'll, all the things I pretended to care about policy-wise, I don't care about them. Just not endorsing Bernie tells that whole picture. If she was serious about the things she put, the majority of things she put on her own platform, on her own website, it's not a question. When she drops out, she endorses Bernie. I don't care if it's a day later, two days later, a week later, whatever it is. That's what you do if you actually believe in the things you put on your website. But you didn't do it, which means you don't believe in the things you put on your website. You don't care that much. It's not about the policy. Well, here we go again. She's never used those words before. Oh, I think right now people want to see improvements in our health care system. That means strengthening the Affordable Care Act. In the middle of a pandemic, 28 million people already didn't have health insurance. Then you're going to add another 43 million up to on top of that because people's health care is tied to their employment. If they lose their employment, they lose their health insurance. So in that scenario, in that scenario where our health care system is a non-health care system, it doesn't exist. It's a joke. What does she say? Oh, I know I was calling for more radical change, but I'm going to, since I want to be VP, I'll say, well, she's got to strengthen the Affordable Care Act. That's what we got to do. So at a time that requires even more radical solutions, even bigger and bolder reforms, she's going in the other direction. I want to expand the Affordable Care Act. The thing which forced people to buy insurance on the private marketplace, how can you think that in the middle of a pandemic and an economic depression? It's because you don't care. It's not about the people. It's not about fixing problems. You want to be vice president. And all for nothing, because she ain't going to get picked. She ain't going to get picked. She's an electoral liability at this point, because she decided to go from economic populist early on in the campaign to full-on Wokesville identity politics nonsense. Totally ruined everything about her brand, whatever brand she had. So anyway, at, right, right on brand, Elizabeth Warren, total joke, never believed in anything serious or substantive, immediately caving on any position she claimed to have in order to get the power, to get the position and the adoration. She never believed in this stuff. It's all about her. And I never would have thought this even a year ago. A year ago, two years ago, she was clearly the number two best senator in the country. Now the number one is disappointing us, and the number two best senator is totally irrelevant, believes in nothing, has no core, and is shameful. So, yeah, everything's going really well. <laughs> everything's going well. The country's imploding, and nobody's fighting for you. Great. All right, guys. I gotta go, bitch. I love y'all. I'll talk to you soon. Everybody stay safe out there. I'm out. Peace.